Well, good morning. It's good to see you as we uh, continue to worship together today. What a great day of, of worshiping, praising God. So uh, for me, um, as I sit down in the front, hearing you as a congregation sing strengthens my faith. I think that's why we gather together. You could stay home, download your favorite sermon and your iPod or your favorite worship list and, uh, and have your own little private worship service, but it would not be this. And, uh, and we would miss out on uh, hearing one another and, and praising God together. Um, you know, some researchers have studied how to motivate people to do what you need them to do. How do you motivate people to work hard? How do you motivate people to uh, be productive? And, uh, you know, many people think, well, that's easy, money, right? Just pay them more. But, but money doesn't always work as a motivator. Sometimes it can even have negative consequences. They found that, uh, for example, if you pay a, a student to, do, uh, to study math, you pay them to do math worksheets, you're going to pay them per math worksheet that they do, they will be more productive in the short term, but they'll learn to hate math in the long run. It actually has a negative impact. Another study that they did, though, studied about work, was they took some people who were working in a call center raising money for a university, and they divided the callers into three different groups uh, to see how different things would affect them. The first group, they had them read stories from previous employees about how the job had benefited them. So they read stories about personal benefit. You make good money. You learn communication skills, and so on. Uh, The second group read stories uh, about how the job benefited others. These were stories from students who had received scholarships from this fund, and they wrote stories about how these scholarships changed their lives. The third group was the control group. They read no stories. Here's what they found. The group that read the stories about how this job benefited them personally actually had no better performance than the control group. They raised no more money, made no more calls, had no effect whatsoever. However, the group that read stories about how their work benefited others received twice as many pledges and, received and raised twice as much money. Understanding that their work had meaning and purpose and benefited others resulted in a doubling of their productivity. And I find that uh, interesting but not surprising. And the reason I find that not surprising is that we're human beings. We're not economic machines. While money is a motivator, what really drives us ultimately is a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. Uh, you know, we, we want to do something with our lives. Well, for this past year, we've been studying the topic of prayer. And we have been uh, talking about prayer. We all acknowledge that prayer is a good thing. We, we all know that we should pray. We even know how to pray. And yet still, many of us struggle to be consistent in prayer. Uh, you know, we know how to do it, but we're not consistent. Could it be that our main struggle to be consistent in prayer is not a problem of discipline, but actually a problem of purpose? Could it be that the reason we struggle to pray is that that we've lost our sense of mission. Here in uh, Colossians chapter 4, God commands us to continue steadfastly in prayer, to be persistent, consistent in prayer. But with this prayer, he gives us our motivation, and our motivation is nothing less than the mission of God. So let's dive right in to see what God has to say both about prayer and about mission. And the first thing is rather obvious, and that is prayer requires discipline. Prayer requires discipline. Look again at verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
So we are to continue steadfastly being watchful. That is the sense of uh, being diligent, persistent, going after it, focused as we pray. Martin Luther illustrates it this way about his dog. He said one time he was at the dinner table and he was eating a piece of meat and his dog was sitting right there and the dog just kept following the meat. You know, wherever the fork went, the dog's eyes went. You know how it is, those of you who have pets. I mean, that dog just was fixed in on that piece of meat. And Luther said, oh, that I would pray the way that dog watches the meat. All his thoughts and concentrations are on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. You know, don't you wish you prayed like that? Prayed like a dog watching meat, you know? And that's what Paul is saying, that we are devoted to prayer. We're, we're locked in on it. When we pray, we're not just kind of casually there. We are focused. We are, are praying, and we're doing this consistently. We're doing this persistently. We're, we're steadfast in that. And to do that takes discipline. But, but here's, I think, where we have a misunderstanding about discipline. Discipline is not contrary to desire, Discipline is not where you make yourself do something you don't want to do. Discipline is actually where you commit yourself to doing things even when you don't feel like doing those particular things because that's what you want. Uh, there's a famous doctor, Dr. J. Uh, he played basketball. He was in the Hall of Fame, Julius Irving. He said this, being a professional is doing the things you love to do on the days you don't feel like doing them. It's doing what you love to do, even on those days you don't feel like doing them. So discipline is not where we force ourselves to do that which we don't want to do. Rather, discipline is where we train ourselves to accomplish that which we want most. It is we, we have a, a higher purpose, a higher goal, and so we're willing to go through short-term pain because we have a long-term gain in mind. And so, so prayer takes that. At, at the moment you're praying, you, it, it's, it's like any sort of discipline. You may not feel like it at the moment, but you continue steadfastly in prayer because ultimately you want what prayer achieves. You, you have a higher goal, a higher purpose, a higher mission. So prayer requires discipline. But it not only requires discipline, we also need to believe that God is listening. And so that's why Paul says that we are to pray with thanksgiving. And so we see that thankfulness inspires prayer. Thankfulness inspires prayer. Now, while our petition and we're praying, we're typically looking to the future. Lord, I want you to do this. I need you to do this. We're praying about the future. But thanksgiving is where we look to the past. And we look to the past to see what God has done. Thanksgiving has two really important purposes. Number one, when we give thanks, we're giving credit where credit is due. And secondly, when we give thanks, uh, we, we are also finding the motivation, the inspiration uh, to trust God uh, with what is going on in the future. We build confidence in God for future requests. Now, in giving credit where credit is due, when we give thanks, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're recognizing that all that we have all that we enjoy, all the gifts that, that we delight in have come to us by the gracious hand of God. Everything that you have, everything that you own, every, every pleasure you enjoy ultimately is a gift from God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He says, look at all your stuff. Where did it come from? God gave you this. 
God gave you the ability to work. God gave you your job. God caused you to be born where you were born. God gave you your family. You didn't do all these things. God gave them to you. So, so why are you bragging about what you've accomplished when it's all a gift? You're to give credit where credit is due. Thanksgiving roots out that arrogance that causes us to think we've earned anything. It's all by grace from first to last. You are here today by God's grace. You're alive by God's grace. You have a home by God's grace. You have a job by God's grace. You have a 401k by God's grace. And we've acknowledged this in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We're saying, Lord, even though I have a pantry full of food, it is all here by your gift. It's here by the grace of God. And on those days when your pantry is not full of food, on those days when your health is failing, on those days when it seems like everything is falling apart, you can still praise God for his grace. You can look to the cross. You can still see that God out of love for us. It was while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And as Paul says in Romans, if God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not along with him also graciously give us all things? The logic is this, that, that God did not give you all these things in the past so that he could abandon you now. He would not make this investment of his son and give his son to you and now abandon this investment. He's not going to do that and drop you at this point. And so when we look at what God has done and say, Lord, I, I can have all sorts of doubts, but the one thing I look at that's true is Jesus died for me. And if you love me like that, then I can trust you with today and tomorrow as well. Thanksgiving inspires that sort of confidence. And so oftentimes the reason we, we struggle with doubts is we're not praying with thanksgiving. We're, we're, we're on to the next thing. We're so in the future, we've forgotten what God has done in the past. If you want to have confidence in God, look at what he's done for you. Remember his goodness. So our prayers are inspired by thanksgiving, but ultimately they're motivated by mission. So mission motivates prayer. Mission motivates prayer. Now, after calling his readers to persistent prayer, Paul then asked the Colossians to pray for him and to pray for Timothy in their missionary effort. Now, even though Paul is in prison, uh, notice the, the nature of his prayer. He doesn't pray uh, and ask them to pray for his release. Now, Paul is not against getting out of prison. He would like to be out of prison. Uh, there's nothing pleasant about being out of prison, but that's, that's not what he asked them to pray for. Notice what he asked them to pray for. He asked them to pray for an open door uh, to tell others the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? Well, he told us earlier in the book of Colossians, and the mystery of Christ is this, is that God is not this local deity for the Jews only, but Jesus is Lord over all the earth. And Jesus has come to bring salvation to people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every ethnicity, and he's bringing them together into one family, the family of God. And so the, the mystery is this, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that all people can find salvation in him. And so he's, he's, he's praying, he says, pray that God would give me an open door for this, that I can proclaim the mystery of Christ. So what is it that motivates Paul? You know, what, what gets him up in the morning? What, what wakes him up and gets him going each day? He's motivated by the mission of God. Now, com contrast Paul's prayer with the way we usually pray. I think, and you know, have you heard of the, the prosperity <laughs> gospel? You, you probably have. It's a, 
It's what you see on many TV preachers. Uh, they, they stand up and they'll say, God wants you healthy and wealthy, and if you'll just pray, and you just have enough faith, and by the way, send me a big check, uh, then God is going to bless you, and you're going to get back a hundredfold for, for whatever gift you do. It's, a, it's the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that you pray and you exercise faith so that God's going to make you happier with material things. I think many of us, as evangelical Christians, have bought into the prosperity gospel light. It's the prosperity gospel without the glam. Uh, it, it is this, that if you, uh, if you go to church, you live right, you do your, your thing, and you try to be a moral person, then, then, then you do what's good, and, and then God's going to reward you for that sort of thing, that God's go- going to bless you for that. Uh, you know, just keep up those daily devotions, because, you know, if you have your quiet time, your day's just going to go better. And, and, it's a, and it's a prosperity gospel light. It is saying, I do this, therefore, God, you're going to give me what I, I want, Well, in the fourth chapter of James, James critiques this sort of praying. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, your own desires. James says, you know what the problem with your prayer is? You're you're praying and you're asking, saying, God, bless me, Lord, give me these material things. And and then notice what James says next. James chapter 4, verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive. You ask wrongly, spend it on your own desires. And then he says, you adulterous people. James says that that sort of praying is spiritual adultery. It It is nothing more than narcissism dressed up in religious clothing. And he says that we may be praying to God, but even though we're praying to God, what we're asking God for is a spiritual mistress. I, I, I'm, Lord, I'm not looking for you. I'm going to you who should be my spouse. I should be faithful to you. But really what I'm wanting is you to give me a mistress that's going to satisfy me because I don't believe that you will. It, it, it's a form of what James calls spiritual adultery. And so, uh, so what we see is it's, uh, uh, we're, we're we're engaging in an adulterous praying. Now contrast that to the way Paul prays. Paul prays for an open door. He's more concerned with God's mission than he is with his own personal comfort. Now again, there's nothing wrong with comfort. Paul would have liked to have been comfortable. He's been fighting to get out of jail for two years by this point. He wants to be free. Uh, Later on, he's going to be in a second imprisonment, and he's going to ask them to bring him some clothes and some books so that he might be more comfortable. He is not opposed to comfort. However, however, what Paul desires more than anything else is the mission of God. His consuming passion, his driving desire is not uh, what Francis Schaeffer calls our own personal peace and affluence. Uh, it's not his own mission. His desire is for the, see the invisible kingdom of God made visible so that others may come to know God's amazing love. Here we see the contrast between the mission of God and the mission of self. The mission of God seeks God's glory. The mission of self seeks my glory. Paul's desire is the mission of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's great for the Apostle Paul. He is the Apostle Paul, right? He has a unique calling. I am not the Apostle Mark. You are not the Apostle whatever your name might be. We're just ordinary Christians. So, so this is different. Paul has one calling. I have a different calling. And, and Paul would say, actually, that's not true. That, that we all may have different callings, but it's all under the same call. It's the call to the Lord. And, uh, and that we're all called to his mission. 
This is not Paul's mission, it is God's mission. And as the people of God, we all are sharing in that mission. It is our mission. So notice in verses five and six, Paul moves from talking about prayer to instructing us on how we are to live among those outside the church. He is not changing the subject. He's still saying on the same topic and the same theme is mission. And that is that what you have to realize is that mission is not some sort of peripheral, some some add-on module that you attach to the Christian faith. It is not an appendage. uh, And it is not that the church has a missions department per se, although it may have people who work in in the area of foreign missions. Rather, the church is the missions department. The church is about the mission. It it is what the church is all about doing. Uh, The church exists for the mission. As as, uh, Christopher Wright said, it is not that God has a mission for his church. Rather, God has a church for his mission. God is on mission. The church exists to be with God on this mission. As Archbishop William Temple once said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. That's why the church exists. The church is not here for us, the church is here for the world. Now I know this, uh, uh, in our consumeristic society, this comes as uh, quite a shock because we think everything exists for us, uh, including the church. And we approach church in the same way we approach most things. We approach church the same way we approach getting consumer goods. So uh, I, you know, if I shop at King Super, uh, and I shop there and they provide me with good service at a good price, I keep shopping there. But when they open up the Walmart neighborhood market across the street and it has cheaper prices and better service, then I might leave my King Super for the Walmart. And we don't call that adultery, do we? I'm not cheating on King Super. I'm free to do that in a consumeristic society. But that's because the, the store exists for me. I don't exist for the store, right? That's just how, how it works. But, but the church is different. I think about how we, we approach the church like consumers. I think about how we go about looking for a new church. What do you call it when you look for a new church? We call it church what? Church shopping. That's a very telling comment, isn't it? What does that say about us? We are consumers, and this is a service provider. And so we shop. And so how do we shop? Well, you know, what are we shopping for? Well, we're looking for a church that ministers to me. Is that the mission of the church? Is the purpose of the church to minister to me? Well, in part, yes, right? In part, that is part of the mission of the church. But, but the church is to minister to me and to you for what purpose? What is the purpose of the church ministering to me? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us the church's job is to minister to the saints by equipping the saints for the purpose of ministry. In other words, the church does not serve the saved instead of the lost, the church serves the saved for the sake of the lost. The church uh, ministers to its people so that its people can minister to the world. And that's why at Village 7, if you, you pull aside any of our leaders and you say, what's the, the main part of Village 7's mission? We'll say it's about making, equipping, and deploying disciples. Making disciples, seeing people come to faith in Jesus. Then taking those disciples and equipping them so that they can be deployed in the world where they live, work, and play, living on God's mission. And, and that is uh, why the church exists. And like Paul, God calls us to join in the ministry of sacrifice. 
We, we are to, to give up of our comfort, even give of our money. We're to give of our preferences. We're to give of our time because the mission of God is more important than my own personal mission. So like Paul, who suffered in prison, we give up our personal desires so that others may know the grace of God. We live for the mission of God rather than the mission of self. And so Paul explains what that looks like. He says in verse 5, Therefore, walk with wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. He says that as we live our lives, to walk, that means as you conduct your daily life, as you're walking along doing the business of life, you do it in a way with the outsider in mind. You're actually, you know how you're told, don't worry about what other people think? Paul says, worry about what other people think. Worry about what other people think. And the people you're supposed to worry about what they think are not here, but out there. Now, what's interesting is for most Christians, you're much more worried about what everybody here thinks than you are worried about what the people out there think. And the Apostle Paul says you have it wrong. We actually have to walk wisely towards outsiders. That we are, as we conduct our life among them, to recognize that those outside the church are watching how we live our lives. And so we're to live in such a way that, that is attractive to them. In fact, the word he uses, he says, we're to redeem the time or to, to make the most of every opportunity. And so to walk wisely towards outsiders means that we live in such a way that we're redeeming the time, that we're making the most of every opportunity we have with those outside the church. We're to be thinking about them and what's going to draw them to the kingdom of God. Now, that does not mean that we live uh, fake uh, it does not mean that we become self-righteous. If you're fake or you're self-righteous, you're actually being a bad witness for the kingdom of God uh, because, uh, because you're not pointing to the reality of it. The reality of the kingdom of God uh, is, that, is that God is one who saves sinners. Uh, and so if our, our friends will believe uh, that God loves sinners, when they see that we are honest about our sin and yet we still rejoice that God loves us, if we act like we have it all together and God loves us, that's not much of a testimony, right? But when we're honest about our sin, now by the way, you don't need to sin anymore. You're doing enough right now. Just be honest about the sin you're doing, right? And so when we're honest about our sin, they can see that. If our coworkers uh, are going to believe that God loves them with all of their failings and in their sinfulness and in their brokenness, then they need to see that we love them in their sinfulness and their brokenness. If we're shunning them, if we're judging them, then they're not going to believe the truth about forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Our community will believe that Jesus came to serve when we show that we too engage in serving our community in the places where it's broken and the places that it's needy. And so we, we live intentionally. We live intentionally as, as those who are on the mission of God uh, so, that, so that people will be drawn to him. And so in other words, as God's people, we do not do evangelism. We live evangelistically. We don't just do it. Evangelism is not this thing you just kind of go and do. We live that way. We, we are engaged in the world. Now, by the way, the Apostle Paul assumes that you're living among unbelievers, right? Uh, otherwise, they can't, you know, you're not making the most of every opportunity. And so we need to be engaged. Not only do we have to be living wisely, he says we need to speak with an awareness, a mission. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So clearly, there's a knowledge component. 
That's why we, we spend time in the Word every Sunday here in our communities, in our discipleship groups, so that you'll know the truth and know how to say it. But there's more than just a knowledge component. It's not, uh, simple, uh, it's not simply telling the truth. We need to tell the truth in a way that people can understand it. I, you know, uh, I've always been a bit blunt. Uh, that's why I fit in much better here in the West than I did in the South. Um, is, uh, you know, I just kind of say what's on my mind. And, um, um, and I always rationalize that as kind of being bold and truthful. And one time I was being rather blunt. And I, don't, I don't even remember what it was, but I remember my dad saying to me, you know, son, you're going to attract more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. And I kept wondering, why do I want to attract flies, you know? Um, but I, I got his point, right? He got his point that, that, that you're not going to be engaging with people if you're just telling the truth. Some people use this as a badge of honor. Well, I was just telling the truth. Well, don't. You do not honor God when you just tell the truth. That is not honoring to God. In fact, God says, don't just tell the truth. He says, tell the truth graciously, right? Tell the truth graciously. That's a biblical command. You're in sin if you're just telling the truth. If you're not telling the truth graciously, you're violating the command of God. And it says if we tell the truth graciously, uh, we're also to tell it, he says, as with what that means is as, as uh, seasoned with salt. Your speech is to be salty. Now, that can mean a lot of different things, so let's clarify what Paul means here by salty speech. Uh, what Paul means is what, what salt does. Salt adds flavor. It, adds, it, adds, adds, it enhances flavor to something. And so when you speak, do it in a way that draws interest. Salt makes you thirsty. And so some, if you're speaking in a way that is salty, it causes people to want to listen and longing for more. Do they want to hear more about Jesus after you're talking or are they turned away? That's what Paul is talking about. And so, so it's not just we lay the truth out there, but we say the truth in such a way uh, that, they would, that others would be engaged. And so we, we speak in, in a manner that draws people there. And so we're to be winsome. If an unbeliever heard you speaking, would they long to know more about Jesus or would they be turned off? Would, would it pique their interest or would they want to turn away? And this doesn't just apply when you're talking directly to those outside the church. It's even when you're in the church speaking in such a way that is salty towards unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul assumes that there are always unbelievers in the church. That whenever Christians are gathering together, there are unbelievers who are present. And, and so Paul's assuming that's happening in the worship service. So we should live with that same assumption that there are always unbelievers among us. So, so as we are, are talking in the hallways, as we're speaking in our communities, uh, would those who are unbelievers, those who are outsiders, would they be drawn to Jesus or would they be needlessly offended? You know, oftentimes we get together, we assume that everyone thinks like we do. We assume that everyone here has the same, say, political beliefs. Shocking news, not everybody does, right? Uh, we assume that everybody comes from the same socioeconomic background. Absolutely not true. And so the question is, as we gather together and, and you're, you're talking, how would someone who's from a different background than you receive what you're saying? How would someone of a different race, a different ethnicity, who grew up in a different place, who, who, uh, who grew up with, a, with different parents, react? Would they long to know more about Jesus, or would they be turned away? Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul does not mean compromise on the truth. 
Paul is in prison for speaking the truth. He will be executed for speaking the truth. Paul is all about speaking the truth. He's not saying water it down. What he is saying, though, be salty, be winsome, draw people in, don't give needless offense. We are people on mission, and our mission is to see the world come to know him, and if we speak in offensive ways, they're not going to come to know him. Walk wisely, speak salty. Uh, That's the point. And so the point is we're always on mission. We pray with God's mission in mind. We conduct our daily lives with a sense of God's mission. We speak in such a way that we are mindful of God's mission. To put it simply, the mission of God is the overarching purpose of our lives. Now we started off uh, by talking about prayer and our need to be consistent and persistent in prayer. Yet what Colossians has shown us is that our struggle to be persistent in prayer is not a sign of a problem with prayer, but maybe a sign of a problem of purpose. We're living for our glory rather than God's glory. We're living for our mission rather than for God's mission. And the irony is, the more you live for yourself, the more miserable you're going to be. The more you live for yourself, the more miserable you're going to be. Jesus said this, He said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you living for the glory of self, or are you living for the glory of God? Are you consumed with God's mission or your mission? When you stop to pray, are you praying simply for your own personal fulfillment or for the mission of God? Are you, I mean, you look at your money. Are you using your own money, money for your own fulfillment or for the mission of God? Your time, are you using it to serve yourself or to serve others? In other words, is your life all about you or is it all about him? God has called us as his people to live on mission. And when we lose our life in Jesus, Jesus promises we'll find more than we were ever looking for to begin with. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you give us the joy and the privilege of sharing in your mission. So Lord, we come before you now and we pray that you would help us to be consumed with your mission, even as the Apostle Paul was consumed with your mission. May we come as we gather and not simply be concerned about my taste, my wants, my needs, my preferences. May we, oh Lord, be concerned with your glory. May we think more about others than we think about ourselves. And may this particularly be true, even as the apostle has directed us to think about those who are outside the church. May we be mindful of how we live and what we say and what we do affects them. And so, Lord, we pray that we would walk wisely, that we would walk wisely, and that we would make the most of every opportunity you give us so that you may be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.